Good morning. Welcome to Calvary Chapel Iwakuni. Great to be here with you all. Uh, always a blessing to gather together to worship our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Um, before we continue any further, let's go ahead and dismiss our elementary age class and our Japanese Bible English class as they make their way out. Will the rest of you please make your way to the 17th chapter of the Gospel of Luke? Okay, Luke chapter 17. This morning, we're going to look to finish off chapter 17 as we continue to make our way through the gospel. We've been following Jesus on his journey towards Jerusalem for quite some time now in Luke's gospel. Jesus has had his face set towards Jerusalem and the fulfillment of his mission uh, there ever since chapter 9 of Luke's gospel. So we've been kind of on this journey for a while. Uh, once we finish chapter 17 today, Lord willing, uh, we will then continue into chapter 18 with a few more teachings of Jesus, some parables, and then in chapter 19, we'll finally come to Jesus's triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem, where we will then focus, shift our focus uh, to that final week of Jesus uh, before going to the cross. And so, um, speaking of the cross, um, today is the first Sunday of the month, and so as our, is our tradition as a church family, we will be spending some time uh, in communion at the close of our service this morning. So looking forward to that as well. Okay. Everyone there in Luke chapter 17? Yeah. All right. If so, I'd like to invite you to rise to your feet in honor of the Lord and his word. Our text this morning is Luke chapter 17, verses 20 through 37. And the title I've given for our study this morning is The Coming Kingdom. Okay. The Coming Kingdom. I'm going to read through our text from my Bible. I'm reading from the New King James Version of the Bible. Uh, as I do so, I want to encourage you all to follow along in your own Bible as best as you can. Luke continues his narrative of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ with the following in Luke chapter 17, verse 20. Now, when he was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them and said, the kingdom of God does not come with observation. Nor will they say, see here or see there, for indeed the kingdom of God is within you. Then he said to the disciples, the days will come when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look here or look there, do not go after them or follow them. For as the lightning that flashes out of one part under heaven shines to the other part under heaven, so also the Son of Man will be in his day. But first... He must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. And as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be also in the days of the Son of Man. They ate, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, as it was also in the days of Lot, they ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. But on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even so, will it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed? In that day he who is on the housetop and his goods are in the house, let him not come down to take them away. And likewise, the one who is in the field, let him not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life will preserve it. I tell you, in that night... There will be two men in one bed. The one will be taken and the other will be left. Two women will be grinding together. The one will be taken, the other left. Two men will be in the field. The one will be taken and the other left. And they answered and said to him, Where, Lord? 
So he said to them, wherever the body is, there the eagles will be gathered together. Very interesting portion of scripture for us this morning. Let's go ahead and pray and ask God to lead us through it. Father, we thank you for this morning, the blessing that it is to be able to gather as a church family, to open up your word, and just allow your word to speak to us and to minister to us. And Lord, as we saying earlier, Lord, we just want to invite your Holy Spirit to be with us, to lead us and guide us, Lord. Um, you truly are welcome here, Lord. In fact, we need you here, Lord. We don't want to be doing anything if you're not here with us. And so, Lord, we thank you that your Spirit is here with us. And Lord, we thank you uh, that you desire to speak to us. Uh, Lord, I pray, give us ears to hear in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may have a seat. Eschatology. It's a, it's a fancy word that um, is used to refer to the study of the end times. Uh, when referring to biblical eschatology, we're talking about what the Bible has to say about the end times or about the last days. There are a number of different interpretations and beliefs that are out there that are associated with biblical end times prophecy. And we're not going to get into all of that today. Um, later on in chapter 21 of the Gospel of Luke, we will look a little more in depth at the end times and what Jesus had to say about them in his Olivet Discourse. But for now, we're going to focus simply upon what Jesus has to say about his coming kingdom here in Luke chapter 17. Now, much, much of what we read in our Bibles is talking about events that are historical, okay? Events that have already taken place. And while the Bible is not meant to be read as simply a historical book, there is a lot of historical information in it, okay? But there is also a great deal of prophecy in the Bible that talks about future events, uh, events that were foretold and then subsequently fulfilled, and events that were foretold and have yet to be fulfilled. Okay? Now, whenever the Bible talks about events that were foretold and then happened, it's very easy to understand those texts. Okay? It's easy to make concrete, definitive statements about those texts. You know, When the Bible prophesies of a virgin conceiving and bearing a son and naming him Emmanuel, as it does in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, Right? Well, we can make definitive type statements regarding the fulfillment of that prophecy because we know, well, that event already took place, right? We read of it in Matthew's gospel when the angel appeared to Joseph in a dream and told him that the virgin that he was betrothed to, Mary, was with child and that which was conceived in her was of the Holy Spirit. And Matthew actually tells us that this was done in fulfillment of what Isaiah the prophet uh, spoke of. You know, when the Bible prophesies of a king by the name of Cyrus, who will serve as the Lord's shepherd and perform all God's pleasure and tell Jerusalem to be rebuilt and the temple foundation to be laid as it does in Isaiah 44, 28, well, we can make definitive statements regarding the fulfillment of that prophecy because we know that some 150 years after Isaiah spoke his prophecy, a certain king in Persia arose named Cyrus. Right? And he was used by the Lord to send his people back to Jerusalem from their captivity in Babylon to rebuild the city and the temple. Ezra the scribe records the decree from King Cyrus himself, Ezra chapter 1. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, 
All the kingdoms of the earth the Lord God of heaven has given me, and he has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is among you of all his people? May his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord God of Israel. He is God, which is in Jerusalem. And so Isaiah prophesied of, of a king named Cyrus that would you know, do these things, and then you know, 150 years later, up pops this guy Cyrus and does exactly what Isaiah prophesied about. Cyrus would even help bankroll much of the building projects, according to the record kept in Ezra chapter 6. You see, it's easy to make definitive statements like that when it comes to prophecies that are dealing with historical events that have already taken place. But things become a little more challenging when we start uh, talking about prophecies that have still yet to be fulfilled. It can be challenging sometimes, not always, but sometimes to make concrete statements about things that have yet to happen. Now, there are some things that I will make definitive statements upon, even when it comes to yet to be fulfilled prophecies. I am 100% convinced and certain that Jesus Christ is going to return to this earth in bodily form and bring God's judgment upon a Christ-rejecting world. Okay, the scriptures are full uh, of that prophecy over and over and over again, okay? And so I don't, I, I'm not shy to say, yeah, I believe that is 100% going to happen, okay? The Bible, it's full of it, uh, those prophecies. But the exact details of his coming is something that I'm not so certain about. I have my thoughts. I have, you know, studied the Bible. I've come to my own conclusions of how I think things will unfold. But I wouldn't say that I'm 100% certain that events will unfold exactly as I think they will. And you guys, that's okay. When talking about the future and what it will be like, we don't see things with 100% clarity. The Apostle Paul alludes to this in the book of 1 Corinthians. When talking about future events, he states, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also am known. You see, when all is perfected and things are complete, when we are in heaven with the Lord, we see him face to face. We will know and we will understand all of these things that we now only see dimly, that we kind of have an idea of, but we're not 100% certain of. You know, there will come a time we'll be able to look back and say, oh yeah, now that's how it happened, you know, and we'll know. In our text this morning, Jesus is asked two questions about the future of God's kingdom. He's asked two questions from two different groups of people, but both dealing with the details about the coming kingdom. The Pharisees approached Jesus and asked a question about the timing of the kingdom of God, when it would come. Jesus responded to the Pharisees without really answering their question, but he did give us some information about the coming kingdom, and we'll note those things. Jesus then turned and addressed his disciples and spoke to them about a number of things pertaining to the coming of the kingdom. And then after addressing them, they too had a question for Jesus. The disciples wanted to know about the location, where, okay? Where would all these things take place that Jesus was talking about? And Jesus answered their question as well. And we'll look into his response to them at the end of our study. Now, as we go through the study, we're going to note certain facts that we can draw out that will help us get a cleaner picture, a clearer picture, if you will, of what the kingdom of God is like and what it will be like in the future. So let's look again at our opening verses where we will note the first question the Pharisees asked and how Jesus responded to them. Verse 20 through 21. Now when he was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, 
he answered them and said, The kingdom of God does not come with observation, nor will they say, See here or see there, for indeed the kingdom of God is within you. Jesus was approached by some Pharisees once again, and this time they wanted to know about the timing of God's kingdom. The wording here suggests that this was not a, just, not a sincere desire to know about the coming of the kingdom of God, but more so the Pharisees trying to stir the pot a little. The word asked in the Greek is actually a little more intense than a mere questioning. This word was used to describe an interrogation of sorts, uh, to accost one with an inquiry. It's almost as if the Pharisees were trying to ridicule Jesus and this kingdom that he keeps talking about. Jesus had spoken many times amongst the multitudes and in the presence of the Pharisees about the kingdom of God. When he first started his public ministry, Mark records how after John the Baptist was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel, okay, the good news uh, of the kingdom of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. In our study of Luke's gospel, Luke recorded how Jesus went through every city and village preaching and bringing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God. When confronted by the Pharisees about his ability to cast out demons, Jesus responded to them, stating, If I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. You see, the Pharisees had heard all this talk about the kingdom of God, how it was upon them, and how it was near, how it was at hand. And so they are interrogating Jesus here a bit with a bit of mockery. So where's this kingdom you keep talking about? When's it going to come? Now, Understand that it wasn't that the Pharisees didn't believe in the coming kingdom. Okay? They just didn't believe Jesus would have anything to do with it. The Jews believed that God would send his anointed one, his Messiah, the Christ, okay? all the same title for the same person, to establish God's kingdom. This was foretold by the Old Testament prophets, and most Jews longingly looked forward to the day God would send his Messiah. But Jesus did not fit their idea of who the Messiah would be and how he would usher in the kingdom of God. The Pharisees, along with most of the other Jews, believed that the Messiah would come and set up an earthly kingdom, that they would come in and lead a revolt against the Romans and free them from the bondage to their Roman system. They were looking for a political or military leader, one who would be able to pull them out from under the thumb of Rome and the Roman Empire and help them establish their own rule, their own reign within the land. You see, they were not looking for a homeless carpenter that hung out with fishermen, tax collectors, and sinners. That was, that was not the Messiah they were looking for. And in response to their inquiry, Jesus answered them, speaking to them about the nature of the kingdom without really addressing the timing of the kingdom. Jesus did not answer their question about the timing of the kingdom of God, and I believe he does so purposefully. For Jesus will later attest that, but of that day and hour... Okay, referring to the coming of the Son of Man and, and the kingdom. He says, But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. You see, after his death and resurrection, and just prior to his ascension, Jesus was with his disciples in Jerusalem, and they asked, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Right? Even after Jesus' death on the cross, his resurrection, it's like, oh, he did all that stuff. And, and the disciples are still like, 
okay, now? Like, you know, are you going to do it now? Like, that was cool and awesome and great, but when are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? But Jesus responded, it's not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. And this brings us to the first point that I want to make about the coming kingdom, of all the different things we're going to note this morning about the coming kingdom. And that's this, that only God the Father knows the exact timing of the coming kingdom. Okay? This is not information we can know. Nobody knows it other than God the Father himself. Okay? And so if you hear of someone saying, like, oh, I've studied and I've looked at this and God's revealed to me, God's going to come back on this day. You know, he's coming back on October 23rd, you know, like a couple weeks, you guys better get ready. You know, like, don't believe them. They don't know. Okay. Nobody knows. Only the father knows. While it is important that we know and understand details about the coming kingdom of God, this particular detail, it's not for us to know. And I think the ambiguity of the timing of God's kingdom is important for us in our walk with the Lord. If we knew the Lord wasn't coming back for another 20 years, how would we live those 20 years, right? Would we live each day to its fullest or would we grow lackadaisical? Would we become complacent? Would we feel like, well, you know, I've got plenty of time to get right with the Lord. He's not coming for another 20 years, right? I think the fact that we don't know when Jesus is going to return to establish his kingdom keeps us living each day with the proper mindset. Uh, of it could be at any time, and I want to be ready. We don't take our time for granted. We don't know how much more of it we have, and so we're faithful and we're diligent with it. Knowing that Christ could be returning for us at any moment leads us to live a holy life, a life ready for Him to return at any moment. And so I think it's very important that we understand that's not information for us to know. No one knows that. It's only for the Father to know. Now, Instead of speaking to the Pharisees about the timing of the coming kingdom, instead he gave them information about the nature of the kingdom, what it was like instead of when it would be. Jesus stated that the kingdom of God does not come with observation. That word observation, it speaks of closely watching or careful observation. It is actually a medical term that Dr. Luke only uses here. It's only found uh, in this one place in all of the Bible, never is it used again. This is the only time you'll find this word. The word speaks of a doctor uh, carefully monitoring a patient for any signs or symptoms or clues that would help them come to a proper diagnosis of whatever their patient's dealing with. And so applied in this text, it means that the kingdom of God is not something that will be observed from the outside. It isn't going to come with a whole lot of fanfare and big parades and mass gatherings and protests like maybe some perhaps imagine. It wasn't going to be like some prominent public figure that would make public appearances throughout the land, getting the people all riled up with them saying, oh, he's over here. Oh, he's over there. Let's go see him now. And and we're going to go check it out, right? It's not going to be like that. Remember, they were looking for a political or or, or a military leader. They would expect to see rallies and uprisings and perhaps militias or armies forming. They were looking for all the outward signs of what they thought the coming kingdom would be like. Jesus said, it won't come like that. It isn't going to be an outward display that people will be able to observe, at least not in this moment. Instead, he said, the kingdom of God is within you. 
Now, the translation of the phrase within you is debated amongst scholars, and some of your Bibles actually may read among you or in your midst, okay? The Greek word is only used two times in the New Testament, here in chapter 17 of Luke, and it's used again in Matthew's gospel, where he instructed the blind Pharisee to first cleanse the inside of the cup and dish that the outside of them may be clean also, Matthew 23, 36. And so it seems that this word is clearly meant to portray something inside or uh, within something versus outside or something external. And I think the issue comes with people not liking the idea of Jesus saying to the Pharisees that the kingdom of God is within them. Because it is very clear that the Pharisees have rejected Jesus and his kingdom. And so it doesn't make sense for Jesus to say that it is within them when it clearly is not within them physically, at least, right? We'd say they absolutely have not received that. And so why would he say that it's within them, okay? And so people propose that this word could be used to refer to something in the midst of or among, uh, so that it is a little easier to swallow when applied to the Pharisees. But I don't think we need to go through all that effort to try and make it easier to understand. The context here helps explain what Jesus is saying. Jesus is not speaking about the Pharisees and their personal relationship with God, but rather speaking about the kingdom of God being something unseen on the inside versus being seen on the outside for display. That's the contrast. He's simply telling the Pharisees the kingdom of God comes from an internal work of God upon the heart and soul of a person. It isn't about a bunch of external work. The, the word kingdom, basilia in the Greek, is connected to the Greek word for king, and it refers to the rule and reign of a king, a royal dominion, a sovereign reign. And so the kingdom of God is the rule and reign of God upon one's life. It is an internal work where the Lord reigns supreme. Now, if your Bible does read among you, or in the midst, we would understand that to be speaking of Jesus being in their midst, or Jesus being among them, right? And it would lead us to believe that Jesus was emphasizing how they were looking for all these outward signs, and yet missing out on the fact that the kingdom represented by Jesus as king was right in front of them, and they didn't even see it, right? And that's true, right? We follow that line of reasoning and that thought. Like, that's absolutely true. Jesus was king of the kingdom. He's right in front of them. They're oblivious to it, right? They don't want to receive him. So we can follow that out, and it is a true statement. While that's true, I don't think that's the main point of the context here. Jesus is speaking of how the kingdom of God comes when God does a work on the inside of a man's heart in contrast to an external work that could be seen through careful observation. Now, I want to need you to understand, this is not to say that God's kingdom will not be a physical, external kingdom eventually. For that will be the case in the future with Jesus' second coming. But the beginning of this kingdom, the initial coming of it, it involves an internal work upon the heart. Now, let's continue on in our text as Jesus transitions from speaking to the Pharisees and turns his attention towards his disciples in verse 22. He says, Then he said to the disciples, The days will come when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. 
It's interesting to me that the Pharisees asked about when the kingdom of God would come, and Jesus did not bother to tell them an answer for that, and instead spoke of the nature of the kingdom of God. But here with his disciples, Jesus begins to describe the timing of his kingdom, referring to them as the days of the Son of Man. Now, the reference to the Son of Man and his days, it actually comes from the book of Daniel. Uh, in the Old Testament. It's a reference to the coming rule and reign of the Messiah. There, Daniel writes about the visions that he saw in Daniel chapter 7. Okay, he said, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. Daniel chapter 7 verses 13 and 14. So when Jesus refers to the days of the Son of Man, he's referring to the days when Jesus returns to establish this everlasting dominion over all peoples, over all nations, over all languages. And we refer to this simply as the second coming of Jesus. When Jesus will return and consummate his kingdom upon and over all the earth. You see, one of the challenges in understanding the kingdom of God is the tension between the already and not yet aspects of the kingdom. The kingdom of God was inaugurated, if you will, with the first coming of Jesus Christ and his work upon the hearts of men. And it actually continues to be formed in our own hearts and our lives as believers and followers of the Lord. When we believe upon Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of our lives, his Holy Spirit comes and takes residence within us. And since the Father and the Son and the Spirit are one, if we have the Spirit of God within us, that means we have the Son in us and the Father in us as well. So God's kingdom, his rule and reign continues in our hearts even today. So it began back in the days of Jesus, okay? It continues even ongoing today, but there's an aspect of God's kingdom that we are still waiting on. It hasn't fully come just yet. The kingdom is yet to be consummated over all the earth, but this will happen at Jesus' second coming. Does everyone understand what I'm talking about? Okay, get a little bit of nods. Okay, good. And so we have this tension, between the already fulfilled aspects of God's in, internal kingdom within the believer and the yet-to-be-fulfilled aspects of God's external kingdom upon the earth. When Jesus was speaking to the Pharisees, he was speaking about the present work of the kingdom of God within the hearts of his followers. But here in verse 22, when speaking to his disciples, he's referring to the future fulfillment of God's kingdom over all the earth. So we're talking about two different time frames here, guys, within the same context, Okay. Jesus said that days will come when the disciples will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and they will not see it. This let the disciples know that there was going to come a time when they would be separated from the Lord's presence and how they would long to see him come again, but they would not see it. Of course, we do know 
that after Jesus' death and resurrection, he did ascend into heaven, leaving his disciples behind in Jerusalem, waiting for the coming of the Holy Spirit that would empower them to fulfill their missions as witnesses to Christ. And the disciples were actually told by the angels there at Jesus' ascension, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. And so they were told that Jesus would return. Okay? Hey, men, you know, just as you saw him go up, he's going to come back down, right? So we know Jesus is coming back. The disciples know he's coming back, and they long for that day. We know that they had to face some tough and, and challenging times. Most of the disciples were martyred for their faith. Okay? While Jesus was up in heaven, they, they longed for him. Hey, come back. And no doubt they, they wanted that to happen, but Jesus said they would not see it. I find this interesting. Why would they not see it? Okay? Is it simply because they would all die prior to that time that the gap of time between his ascension and return would be well beyond their lifetime? Or could it be referring to something else? And this line of thought just intrigued me uh, because of what I believe the scriptures teach about the second coming of the Messiah and what those days will be like for those who experience it. The days of the Son of Man are days of judgment. When Jesus Christ returns to this world, it will be for judgment. He's going to judge the peoples and all of the nations. At His first coming... He came as the suffering servant, but at his, his second coming, he comes as the conquering king. Okay? At his first coming, he came as that sacrificial lamb, but in his second coming, he comes as a roaring lion. The book of Revelation goes into great detail describing what that time will be like. Okay? It's a time of great wrath being poured out upon the world. It's referred to as the tribulation. The seven seal judgments will bring great conflict and death upon the earth. They will be followed, these will be followed by seven trumpet judgments. And then finally, the seven bowl judgments. Revelation says that in these final seven golden bowls was filled the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And then we're told in Revelation 16:1 that these bowls are poured out upon the earth. There's a wrath of God being emptied out upon the earth. The days of the Son of Man, okay, do not get this you know, mistaken, they are day, days of judgment. Okay? The coming kingdom represents coming days of judgment. The Jews were excited about the coming kingdom and longed to see those days, but they will not be pleasant days for those who have rejected Jesus Christ. And I wonder if Jesus' definitive statement, you will not see it, referring to seeing just one of the days of the Son of Man, doesn't involve more than just the idea that they would, you know, they'll just die before that time. I wonder if they will not see it because those days are not meant for them to see. These are days of God's wrath being poured out upon the earth. These are days of God's judgment. Perhaps Jesus was alluding to the idea that his disciples would not face the judgment of God because Jesus will have already taken their judgment upon his shoulders upon the cross of Calvary. And so it wouldn't make sense to have believers face the judgment of God and the wrath of God when they've already had their sins judged and have not been appointed to wrath. And we will save further discussion of this idea for when we get to Luke chapter 21, but it could be a picture or an allusion to the idea that God's people will not face the judgment 
and will not be around for the days of tribulation that precede Christ's ultimate return. Something to ponder and, and think about. Okay? Maybe whet your appetite for what's to come in a, in a couple months. Okay? Back to our text. Take a look at verse 23. It says, And they will say to you, Look here or look there. Do not go after them or follow them. The days of the Son of Man, the coming of the kingdom, will be days that are filled with all sorts of deception, great deception. Jesus said to his disciples when speaking about the tribulation and the days leading to his coming, to take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. Jesus warns his disciples about those who would try to sway them or make them to believe that things are happening here or they're happening over there. You better go see what's going on. Jesus told his disciples, don't go after them. Don't follow after those people. Jesus later warned his disciples, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ or there, do not believe it. Flat on, he says, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. Guys, it is so sad that so many people have been led astray and deceived and have not properly heeded this warning of Jesus's. People have been duped, they've been deceived, they've been robbed, blind, and even lost their lives due to their blind allegiance to some of these phonies and charlatans that are out there, okay? I, I did a, I was doing some Google searching of, you know, people that have claimed to be Christ. It is a long list. It's like a whole Wikipedia page. Like it goes on for a long time. Of all these people are like, yeah, I'm the reincarnation of Jesus Christ. I'm the second coming of Jesus Christ. And there are people that have given their lives in support of these people, believing that they really were the Christ. It's crazy. Jesus said, someone says that and someone says, oh, there's the Christ. Go the other way, okay? Don't go anywhere near those people. Do not believe it. (laughs) Watch out, you guys. Don't be deceived. The days leading to the coming of Jesus will be filled with all sorts of deception. Paul warned Timothy, stating evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. And we are living in those days of deception today. Paul warned Timothy saying the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers and they will turn their ears away from the truth and they will be turned aside to fables. We need to make sure that we heed this warning that Jesus is giving to his disciples. Do not be deceived. Do not be led astray. Don't follow after those who claim to be the Christ or claim to be some secret servant of Christ that you need to follow after. Hey, don't have anything to do with it, okay? We're going to run out of time, so let's carry on, okay? Read with me verse 24. We'll note another element of the coming kingdom. It says, For as the lightning that flashes out of one part under heaven shines to the other part under heaven, so also the Son of Man will be in His day. Contrary to those who would try to lead you into believing that, you know, of some secret return of Jesus. Oh, Jesus is over here. He's over there. You missed it. You know, you got to go see him. Jesus tells us very plainly that his coming will be unmistakable. Okay. The coming of the son of man in his day will be something that all will see. It'll be like a flash of lightning that cannot be missed. The day of Jesus' return will be an unmistakable event that the whole world will know about. Again, the book of Revelation gives us a description of the 
that day when Jesus Christ returns in Revelation chapter 19. There it reads, Now I saw heaven and heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses, Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God and he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You guys, this will be a sight that I do not believe anybody will miss, okay? It won't be like, oh, I I didn't see that, okay? like white lightning streaking across the sky from one part of heaven to another part, so too will be the day of His coming when the heavens open up and He streaks across the heavens upon a white horse and an army behind Him that are in white robes on white horses of their own, you know, flying across the sky like a bolt of lightning. You're not going to miss it, okay? It will be unmistakable. Those who are alive to witness it will not be able uh, to forget it. Take a look at verse 25 with me. He says, but first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Jesus pauses here in verse 25 and he comes back to the present situation. Before those things can take place, those future things, before the Son of Man returns in glory, descending upon the back of a white horse, there are a few things that will transpire prior to this. And these are things that must transpire. These must happen. Jesus said he must suffer many things. The suffering that he's referring to here is the pain and the suffering of the cross, the feeling of being forsaken by the Father. Jesus said he must do this. There was no other way, no other option This was mandatory. Jesus' mission during his first coming was to end up upon the cross of Calvary and to rise from the dead. Jesus came to die upon the cross for us, to take our sins upon his shoulders and die in our place. This was the only way for us to be reconciled to the Father, and so Jesus must do this. Not only must he suffer many things, but Jesus mentioned how he must be rejected by this generation, referring to the Jews that he was sent to. The Jews rejected their Messiah. They sent him to the cross to die a criminal's death, though he did nothing deserving of such a thing. This is how it had to happen, though. Before Jesus could come as that roaring lion and that conquering king on a white horse, he first had to come as the sacrificial lamb, rejected by his own people that he may be made available to all people. This was all part of God's great redemption plan for the whole world, and it had to be done this way. Before any of these other things of the kingdom could take place, he must first go to the cross and suffer for us. Let's continue and look at a few more things about the coming kingdom. Verses 26 all the way down to verse 32. 
It says, and as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be also in the days of the Son of Man. They ate, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, as it was also in the days of Lot, they ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. But on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even so will it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. In that day he was in he was on the housetop and his goods are in the house. Let him not come down to take them away. And likewise the one who is in the field, let him not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Jesus alludes to two different historical events that picture what it will be like on the days leading up to his coming and the actual day when he, the Son of Man, is revealed. The first event he mentions has to do with the days of Noah and what transpired then. We read about this account in the book of Genesis in chapters 6, 7, and 8. So what were the days of Noah like? Well, according to Genesis chapter 6, the Lord looked down upon the people of the earth and he saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And God decided to send a flood upon the people to destroy them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. God instructed Noah to build an ark that God would use to protect him and and pairs of the land-dwelling animals from the flood. Noah worked on building that ark for years and years. And during that time, he preached to the people to turn from their wicked ways. Peter referred to Noah as a preacher of righteousness. It wasn't just him kind of doing his own thing, minding it. No, he was preaching to them. Okay? But the people did not listen to Noah. They just continued with their lives as usual, eating and drinking marrying and giving themselves in marriage, completely disregarding Noah's preaching and continuing in their sinful ways and just living life as they pleased. Our text tells us they did this all the way up until the day Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. The second event is very similar. And it too is recorded for us in the book of Genesis. This time it was the account of Lot and his interaction within the city of Sodom. It's found in Genesis chapter 19. The days of Lot were much the same as the days of Noah. Lot, according to Second Peter, was a righteous man who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked in the city of Sodom. Second uh, Peter chapter 2, verses 7 and 8 talk about this. Peter tells us how Lot dwelt among them and tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. Okay? Lot probably shouldn't have been in Sodom to begin with, okay? Um, but he was there and it tormented him. He put himself in torment by putting himself in that kind of a situation. Okay, but he was righteous. He, he, he did not like to see and hear of all their lawless deeds. God was aware of the wickedness going on in Sodom. Earlier in Genesis 13, it states how the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinful against the Lord. So God decided to send two angels down into the city to determine if there were any righteous within the city and to make witness against the men of Sodom to their wickedness. And after seeing the extent of their wickedness firsthand, the angels decided it was time to destroy the city. But Lot was actually able to go out and speak to some loved ones, his sons-in-laws, who were part of the crowd, but they did not listen to him. They did not take him seriously. Just like in the days of Noah, despite receiving warning about their impending judgment, they completely disregarded and continued on with their lives. Our text describes how the 
They too ate and drank like the people of Noah's day. They bought, they sold, they planted, they built. Life is normal. No need to worry about what that righteous guy Lot thinks, right? They continued in their daily living up until the day that Lot went out of Sodom and it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Jesus says that as it was in those days, so it will be in the day the Son of Man is revealed. You see, the day the Son of Man is revealed, the day of His coming kingdom, will be a day of great destruction. Okay? The people will be forewarned. They will have opportunity to repent, but they will ignore those opportunities and they will continue on with their sinful, wicked ways, thinking that they have nothing to worry about up until the day of His coming, and then their lives will be required of them. They will not have time to get right with the Lord. They will not have time to go get their belongings and try to salvage whatever they can from the coming destruction. All such efforts will be pointless. You guys, I'm not, I'm not trying to scare anyone here or, or try to incite fear or panic or, you know, to say, Jesus is coming back today, you know, because we don't know when he's coming back, right? You guys, but as I, I, I look at our day and age today, I can't help but re- be reminded of the days of Noah and the days of Lot. We live in the days where sin is celebrated, where it's glorified. It seems more and more that like the days of Noah, the hearts of people have become fixated upon evil and wickedness. I see this, the, the men of Sodom and their moral depravity, their sexual immorality and their perversity, and I see the same thing today. And I would say things have even gotten worse. Where Noah and Lot were once simply ignored, things nowadays have gone beyond ignoring the voice of the righteous. The people of this day and age want to villainize the voice of the righteous. And they want to attack them for their stances that they take in accordance with God's word. And they want to call you all sorts of names, okay? And they want to say that you are uh, using hate speech, okay, based upon what you believe according to God's word. Okay? The days we live in, you guys, they are ripe for judgment and destruction. This we can be certain of. Okay? Again, I'm not trying to scare anyone. I'm just saying, as it was in those days is how it is today. Okay? Back to our text, 33 through 36, it says, whoever seeks to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. I tell you, in that night there will be two men in one bed. The one will be taken and the other will be left. Two women will be grinding together. The one will be taken the other left. Two men will be in the field. The one will be taken and the other left. In these verses, we see that the coming kingdom will involve a separation. In verse 33, Jesus says, Whoever seeks to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. During the tribulation, if you want to save your physical life and be able to live and operate during that time, you will be forced to take the mark of the beast. Revelation 13 states, He, referring to the beast of the earth, causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads, and that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. You see, if you want to be able to buy food and eat during that time, if you want to preserve your life, ultimately you will end up losing it because you will be forced to bow down and worship the beast. 
Revelation tells us that all who will not take the mark, all who will not worship the image of the beast are to be killed. Those that lose their life will ultimately preserve it for eternity. Again, Revelation tells us that all who dwell on the earth will worship him, referring to the beast, whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. So you have two types of people. Those who have their name written in the Lamb's book of life, okay, who are believers who say, I'm not going to worship the beast because I worship Jesus Christ. And you have those who say, okay, I'll worship the beast. You know, give me the mark. I want to be able to buy sale. I want to be able to preserve my life. You're going to have a separation of people. If you want to preserve your life and live through the tribulation, you will lose it for eternity's sake. If you want to, if you lose your life, however, you say, I'm not willing to take the mark, I'm not willing to, to worship the beast, you will be killed and you will lose your life, but you will gain it in eternity's perspective. So those in days, they will involve separation, a separation from the believer and the unbeliever. Jesus said this in Matthew's gospel. He said, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats and he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. And then the king will say to those on his right hand, come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. But to the ones on the left, Jesus will say, depart from me, you cursed into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And so we see very clearly, there will be a separation that occurs when Jesus Christ returns and establishes his reign upon this earth. Now, verses 34 through 36 also speak of separation. And then I know some of you don't have verse 36 in your Bible. Okay? Its uh, placement is not of great significance. It merely adds another example of similar situations found in verses 34 and 35. But if you notice, uh, your Bible may have a little superscript next to it. If it just goes 35, then 37, look for a little mark, and it usually will point you to your footnotes or your center column and tell you what verse 36 actually says. Okay, these verses talk about how a separation will be occur. It says there will be two in one bed. Another indicator, just so you guys know, and you're not misunderstanding anything here. In the New King James Version, at least, the word men is in italics. Okay, that means it's not part of the original text. This is not like two men in a bed. Is this like some homosexual, you know, relationship? That's not what this is referring to. Okay, this is just two people. Two people in a bed. One is taken, one is left. Okay, the same thing, you know, two women, they're grinding mill. Okay, women is, it's just two are grinding. Okay, two are grinding, one's taken, one's left. Okay, if you don't have verse 36 in your Bible, it says two will be in the field, one taken, the other left. Separation, one taken, one left. Now, the exact interpretation of this portion of Scripture is debated, and I am not 100% confident okay it could be that those taken are those that are taken in judgment the ones left are those who will enter into the kingdom of god when jesus establishes his millennial reign on earth or it could be that those taken are those that are taken in what we call the rapture of the church the ones left behind would be those left to experience the wrath and judgment and destruction that comes with the coming kingdom 
Now, when you look at these interpretations, they are pretty much the exact opposite of one another. Okay? One suggests that you want to be left behind. The other suggests the opposite, that you want to be the one taken. Right? And, and so which one is it? I really don't know, to be honest with you. Okay? And, and I actually like what Pastor Chuck Smith, the founder of Calvary Chapel, had to say on this matter. He said this, when you get into a place like that where you have two diametrically opposed interpretations that both could be correct, that he finds it best to file it away and say, well, I'll just wait for further information. <laughs> I, I like that, you know. <laughs> when we get to heaven, we'll figure it out, all right? I, I really can't say with certainty. I'm led to believe, okay, that this is indeed speaking about judgment, destruction, the wrath of God being poured upon uh, out during the tribulation. So I'm led to believe the people taken are the ones taken in judgment and the ones left are the ones that will be welcomed into the kingdom of God. But that's also based upon what I believe about the rapture and, and other things. And we'll get into that when we get to Genesis or Luke chapter 21. Okay. All right. Let's look at our last verse. We'll wrap this up. Sorry, it's a little late here. Verse 37 says, and they answered and said to him, where Lord? So he said to them, wherever the body is, there the eagles will be gathered together. After hearing all these details about the coming kingdom, the disciples had a question about where all these things would take place. Where will this judgment take place? This wrath, the destruction, the taking of these people. Where is this all going to take place? Jesus' answer was this. Wherever the body is, there the eagles will be gathered together. The word eagles can also be translated as vultures. Maybe your Bible says vultures. The idea is that these will be birds of prey. Some try to say that eagles is a bad translation because eagles uh, don't eat carrion. But you guys, that's simply not true. Hey, eagles will eat a carcass. Um, you know, they'll hunt live animal, but if they aren't successful in that and there's a, a carrion, you know, uh, they will go on and, and feast. Okay, they have no problems doing that. Okay. Um, and so to try and say that's not a good translation because it's, you know, eating a body, you know, that's not a good, not good ex, uh, Bible interpretation. Okay. Jesus says where the body is. And, and when he says body, the intent is, is corpse or, or dead body. Okay. A, a carcass, if you will, where the body is there, the eagles will be gathered. Jesus states that you will know the place based upon all the birds of prey that have gathered around ready to devour the corpses of the dead bodies that are left behind as a result of this judgment and destruction that comes uh, that we read about in the book of Revelation. Now, I do believe Revelation has a description of this very event that Jesus is referring to. Revelation 19 speaks of Jesus coming on the white horse with his armies coming against the beast and destroying them in battle. Okay, Revelation 19 reads, Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. The angels are going to call together the birds to devour these bodies that are left in uh, waste from the battle, uh, Jesus coming down and fighting against the, the nations, the beast, and those who uh, followed the beast. Listen, the coming kingdom will be a decisive victory for the Lord over all who are in opposition to him. 
And you guys, I think the simple application for us is this. Let's make sure we're on the right side, right? We already know who wins. And I don't know about you, but I like winning, okay? I like to win. Um, I like to play games, and I like to win. Okay? And if I already know who's going to win, I'm going to make sure I'm on that side, right? That just makes sense to me. Nobody likes to lose, okay? Who wants to be on the losing side of this? Nobody, okay? And the only way that you could be certain of our victory is to place our hope and our faith in Jesus Christ now while we have the opportunity to do so, okay? Remember that Jesus Christ paid the price for you so that you don't have to face this sort of judgment and destruction. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning, the opportunity just to gather together and to get into your word, to look into the future of things we don't quite see clearly, Lord. We see them dimly. Um, Lord, we thank you for what you have given us. We can glean some truths and we do know some things about your coming kingdom. And Lord, I pray that we would uh, live for your kingdom and that we would um, just be ready. Be ready for your kingdom whenever you do come. We ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.